when I was a kid, I remember, I was told Patrick earlier, remember singing that hymn, do you remember that hymn, Jesus, Jesus, there's just something about that name. And I love it when it says, and kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's just something about that name. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're so glad you're here this morning. What a, what a great time of worship today. We're going to kind of wrap up. We've been looking at Matthew chapter 26, and we've been journeying through 26, and we've been talking about the verdict. And we've looked at this passage, and we've kind of unpacked it, and we looked at, okay, what are some verdicts that people have come to when it comes to Jesus? Now, I want you to kind of follow me for a moment, because when you look at Matthew 26, well, I don't want to look at it independent of the rest of Matthew. Because from Matthew 1 all the way up to Matthew chapter, through chapter 25, we've seen Jesus. We've seen him heal. We've seen him teach. We've seen Jesus do so many things. But in chapter 26, we see people that come to Jesus and they make the conclusions about who they think that he is. And so one of those verdicts came from a person, a group of people actually, the, the religious leaders who decided that the verdict they would come to is this, is that Jesus is a threat. And he has to be dealt with. And I asked you on that day a couple of weeks ago, is Jesus a threat to you? And immediately you're going to go, no, 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 he's not a threat to me. But if you think about it, why was he a threat to the religious leaders? Because they were concerned that he would take over their position and their power. They weren't willing to relinquish their power. And I just go as far as say this. Maybe that sounds a lot like some of us with our own lives. We like control. And maybe many of us don't want to relinquish the power we have. And so maybe Jesus is a threat. And then we came across a guy named Judas. And his conclusion was, and his verdict was, is that Jesus is somebody worth portraying. Now I ask you, or, or do you feel like you're a Judas maybe? And all of you would probably say what? No, absolutely not. I'm, I'm not Judas. But the truth of the matter is this. If we claim to love Jesus and we claim to be devoted to him, does our lives reflect that? And if not, are we any better than Judas? And then we came across a woman who had this amazing flask of perfume. She'd been saving probably most of her life, and she poured it on Jesus, all of it. A reminder to her that her verdict was this, is that Jesus is worth everything. Everything I have and everything I am is his. And ask which verdict have you come to? Now, last week we did something that I was so excited about it, and I hope it was good for all of us, but we took some real moments, and I took more moments than I should have, but we took some real moments, and we looked at Jesus' own verdict about himself as we looked at the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we took a look at how Jesus would have introduced and how he would have had done a Passover meal with the disciples. But in this moment, this Passover meal changed from a Passover to now it's being known as the Lord's Supper. Now the, the bread that is broken is no longer a picture of a quick escape. It's now a picture of a body that was going to be sacrificed. No longer is the juice a picture of a lamb that was going to be slaughtered, but now it's a picture of the lamb who was going to be slaughtered for our sins. And the verdict of the Lord's Supper is this, is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Amen? Amen. Now today we're going to come to maybe, maybe, maybe. I say this way too often, but it just changes every week, I guess. Maybe one of my favorite moments in Scripture. I believe this might be the most intimate moment in all of the New Testament and the Gospels. A moment that we see something in Jesus like maybe we've never seen before. And the verdict that we're going to come to by the end of this is this simple verdict. That when we see all that Jesus has done and all that he says, here's going to be our conclusion. That he desperately loves us. 
Now, why is that important? Because some of you walked through that door a few moments ago, or maybe an hour ago. And there's been moments in your life when you feel like, I'm not sure I'm loved by anybody. I'm not sure anybody cares about me. And I'm just telling you, as we go through the passage today, I want you to be greatly reminded that you are loved by the one who matters the most, that you are loved by God and you matter to him. And we're going to see the demonstration of that love and the words and the actions of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 26 is where we're going to be. And I know you just were seated, but we're going to stand again because you're about to have turkey in four days. So let's stand again. Here we go. Will you stand with me in honor of reading God's word? Here we go. Matthew 26, 36 is this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which have been James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here. Watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if it cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and he said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand and the son of man has been betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, as we look at this passage, there is so much here today. But as we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, there's really four things I want you to see with me. And here's the first one. I want you to see with me the suffering of Jesus. Look with me in verse uh, 36 through 38 again. It says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place of Gethsemane. I remind you, where were they? They were in the upper room. They were in Jerusalem. And they leave Jerusalem and they pass through what's known as the Kidron Valley. And they go to the place called Gethsemane. That word Gethsemane translates the olive press. Now, to make wine as they would have, you would have had to press the olives to the point where they would have been basically exploded and the juice would have come out. What a beautiful picture of the suffering that Jesus was going to endure. Amen? What a place to go. So they took him to Gethsemane. Look what it says next. It says, and he told his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. The first thing I want you to notice is the suffering of Jesus. There's two words I really want you to kind of think about. The first one is this. It says that he was sorrowful. That word sorrowful literally translates a deep inward pain. That's what Jesus experienced. When he said he was sorrowful, it wasn't just like, you know, I'm kind of in a bad mood. I kind of had a bad day. That's not what it means. It means a deep inward pain. Now you think about why would Jesus be so sorrowful at this point? Well, think about it. Think of what has just happened. He had one of the 12. Now think about it. One of the 12 leave him at the Lord's Supper who dipped into the haroset as Jesus dipped into the haroset, that sweet mixture, reminding them of deliverance. And as they dipped together, 
let everybody know that Judas is the traitor. And one of the 12, now let me think about it. You say, well, Doug, Judas was the devil from the beginning. I know that, but let me ask you this. Did Jesus choose Judas? Not a trick question. Did Jesus choose Judas? Yes, he did. Did Jesus love Judas? Yes, he did. And so if you think about it, why is he so sorrowful? Why is there this deep inward pain? It's because one of his very own, one of the 12, has left to betray him. Think about that. Deep sorrow. But not only that, but also Peter, that Jesus knew what was coming down the pike. He knew that not long after this, not just one of the 12, but one of the three, one of the most intimate with him, Peter would turn around and deny him in one of the biggest moments of his life. And if that wasn't bad enough, think about what else he knew. He knew that not only Judas had betrayed him, not only did Peter deny him, but all the rest of the disciples besides John, when all this went down, guess where they were going? They fled. They were scared to death. Now, let me just ask you a question. If you had poured your life into 12 people for three and a half years and just poured yourself into them and taught them what the kingdom of God looked like and taught them the heart of God and taught them the will of God and you invested and you poured into them and you let them see you in a way that nobody else had seen you, would you think that if they betrayed you, denied you, and fled from you, would you be a little bit sorrowful? Would there be a deep-seated pain within you? Yes. Jesus was sorrowful. It also says, no, he's sorrowful that he was troubled that word trouble means he was greatly distressed, meaning there was something inside of him that was just churning. There was something unsettling inside him. And you say, well, Doug, why, why would Jesus be on the obvious of what you just said? Why would he be so distressed? Why the difference in sorrow and trouble? Well, sorrow is just this inward pain because all of it's happened and what's going to happen. But deeply distressed means there's something churning in him. There's something weighing on him. Well, what would be the greatest weight that Jesus would have experienced? Before he goes to the cross. Here it is. You ready? He knew. You ready? He knew there was a moment that the father would have to forsake him. There was a moment, and we'll get to it in a minute. There was a moment that Jesus, the son of God, knew that his heavenly father would have to forsake him while he was on the cross. And he was troubled. Now, I want you to think about this with me because sometimes when we think about sorrow and we think about trouble and we think about the anguish of Jesus, typically we go to the cross. And in fact, in two weeks, December the 8th, we are going to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. You say, well, Doug, I, are we, aren't we in Christmas now? Listen, the cradle was going somewhere, wasn't it? The baby in a manger was headed somewhere and it wasn't just to hang out with his pals. He was going to a cross. That was always the plan. And so we're going to talk about the crucifixion, but oftentimes we think about sorrow and anguish and being troubled. We think about all that as it relates to the cross. Let me say this to you. His sorrow didn't begin on the cross. His trouble didn't begin on the cross. His troubled spirit and sorrowful spirit began in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was sorrowful and he was troubled. When you look at the Garden of Gethsemane, what we realize is, is that Jesus experienced deep, deep inward suffering. Why? He knew the cross was coming. He knew someone had to pay a price for the sins of the world. He knew it was coming. Not only did he know that the cross was coming, but listen, he also knew that he that knew no sin had to become sin. 
Now think about that for a moment. Here is the perfect son of God who never sinned, who was perfect. And there was going to be a moment when he was on the cross that he would take on the weight of the sin of the world as if he was the sin, as if he had sinned. He who knew no sin was going to become sin. But what really was the suffering for Jesus is that moment when he would cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want you to hear me here. Don't, don't miss this. Jesus was not doubting God. Jesus was not questioning God. That phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, in the original language really implies an anguish that Jesus is feeling. He's like, God, I know it's coming. And God, I hate that you're going to have to turn for me. I mean, there's a deep cry from Jesus. He's broken that there's going to be a moment that the Trinity is going to be interrupted. For the first time in all of history and the last time that will ever happen in all eternity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit had a moment of interruption when Jesus was on that cross. Do you think that added to the suffering that he felt? You better believe it. And you know what else he said? Not only do you feel like he was sorrowful and troubled, he says, I'm sorrowful even to the point of what? Death. Can I tell you what that means? That means that Jesus himself knew he was pushed to the limit. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us this, that Jesus was so sorrowful and he was so troubled that he would sweat drops of what? Blood. Can you imagine that kind of sorrow? That's what Jesus went through. When you think about Jesus and you think about all he went through, he was so distressed to the point of death. He knew he was pushed to the end. He's sweating drops of blood and he is suffering inwardly and before he even suffers outwardly. Now I say that because of this. Please hear me today. As we think about East, I mean, Christmas and we think about the cross and we think about all this stuff, I want us to understand that the suffering of Jesus really began in Gethsemane. And if you've ever had a moment in your life that you've doubted how much he loved you, think about what he was willing to do for you. Think about how he was willing to endure the shame. He was willing to endure the abandonment. He was willing to endure the denial. He was willing to endure the desertion. Jesus was willing to endure all of that. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves us. Because he loves humanity. And he that knew no sin would become sin. Do you think all this weighed on Jesus just a little bit? Now, I want you to notice one second thing with me is this. It's not only the suffering of Jesus. I want you to notice the faithfulness of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus. Look with me in verse 39, the very first part. It says this, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and what? He prayed. He prayed. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed. Now listen, in the midst of suffering, what did Jesus do? He prayed. He prayed. He went to the Father and said, Father, I need some clarity. I get all these emotions going. Listen, if there's ever a time in Scripture that we really see the humanity of Jesus because we know he's 100% God and 100% man, but there's ever a time that we see the big picture of the humanity of Christ, it is right here. In the midst of this sorrow, in the midst of this trouble, in the midst of this heart that is churning inside, he goes to the Father and says he falls on his face and he just prays. And he cries out to the Father. I mean, if you think about it, listen to me. When we are filled with sorrow, where do we go? Where do we go when we're filled with sorrow? Do we find ourselves going to the Lord? 
Or do we find ourselves trying to find a different way to give clarity? See, the reason we pray, listen, the reason we pray is because we need God to speak, don't we? We pray because there's this life situation going on and we need clarity where there is confusion. And Jesus, who's in the midst of the deepest rooted struggle in his life, doesn't try to figure this thing out on their own. And if there's anybody who could have figured it out, I'm guessing the Son of God could have. Amen? But he doesn't. And it says he goes and he falls on his face. Now, please hear me. The Son of God, think of his posture. He falls on his face, but toward his heavenly Father, in total surrender, and said, Lord, I need you. Now, if the Son of God took that posture, how much more might we should take that posture in our own life? Right? See, not only was Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, we see the faithfulness of Jesus that he would go and take his concerns and go seeking clarity from his heavenly Father, just as we should. And then there's one more thing I want you to notice. And it's this. And it's the struggle of Jesus. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes, I don't, I don't know if anybody else, does anybody, when you go through a difficult time in the room, ever throw a pity party for yourself? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. There's a few honest people in the room. The rest of you, well, maybe you're just better than we are, right? We throw pity parties. But there's sometimes in the midst of my pity party, I will say something like this. I may not come out of my mouth, but it's in my heart, and it's this. It's like, Lord, you just don't get it. Really? He doesn't get it. Think about it. If Jesus endured what Jesus endured, and he was filled with sorrow and trouble, do we ever have the audacity, or should we have the audacity to say, Lord, I'm not sure you get it? If anybody understands the sorrow that you're going through, if anybody understands the depth of the pain and the suffering that we go through, it would be Jesus. Amen? Amen. He knows what we're going through. But even in this, while we see the suffering of Jesus and we see the faithfulness, we also want to see the struggle of Jesus. Look with me in verse 39 and 42. It says, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, and again, the second time he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink, your will be done. Here's the struggle of Jesus, and I think it's found the first statement. If this cup can pass from me. Now, I have a real quick question here. Was Jesus trying to opt out of saving the world? No, no. But I want you to understand what Jesus understood. Jesus said, if this cup can pass from me. Now, what's the cup he's talking about? The cup is this. The cup is a picture of the wrath and the judgment of God. The cup is a picture of the wrath and the judgment of God. Now, when we think about the wrath and we think about the judgment of God, I think we probably have a very mild manner approach to the wrath and the judgment of God. But Jesus understood the weight of the wrath and the judgment of God. Jesus understood that there's going to come a moment that God was going to have to do something for the payment of sin to happen, Romans chapter 3, for the payment of sin to happen that people might know salvation. There's going to have to be a moment when all sin for all time is going to have to be atoned for. And for that to happen, the unbelievable and unimaginable wrath and judgment of God must be poured out on someone. And Jesus understood that's what the cup was. If this cup, this cup of unimaginable wrath, this cup of unimaginable judgment 
if it could pass. Meaning, are we sure this is the only way, Lord? Because listen, come on, hear me. Can you imagine taking that cup of judgment and wrath upon you for the weight of the sins of the world? No. And in this moment of his greatest humanity, Jesus says this cup of judgment and wrath, if this cup can pass, is it, are we sure this is the only way, Father? Because listen, I'm worn out with emotion. I'm troubled and I'm sorrowful and I need wisdom and I need direction. But notice what Jesus says. In the midst of this struggle, this unbelievable struggle that if this is what's going to happen, this wrath and this judgment, is there another option? Are we sure, Lord, this is the only path? But then notice what he said next. But not my will, but what? Your will be done. Now think about that. Even with all the sorrow that Jesus is facing, here was his heart. My primary goal, Father, is to do your will. Even though Isaiah 53 says that I'm going to be smitten by God. Even though scripture says that I'm going to die for the ungodly. Even though scripture reminds me that I who knew no sin would have to become sin. That people might have salvation. Even though all that's true. My ultimate goal. My first priority in my life Lord. Is to do your will. Now something interesting just popped into my mind a few days ago. This is the exact opposite of what we saw in the first garden. Right? Remember the Garden of Eden? It wasn't about doing God's will. It was about doing what? Their will. And here we are thousands of years later, and we're in a different garden. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now Jesus is saying, I'm laying aside my thoughts, my desires, my emotions, because ultimately what I want to do is not my will, but your will. That's why Romans tells us with sin entering through one man, Redemption comes through another man, right? What sorrow he must have felt. Jesus is struggling, but he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. Now listen, the reason this moment is so important, the reason this moment of seeing his, his, his struggle is so important, the reason this moment of seeing his faithfulness is so important, the reason this moment of seeing his suffering is so important, because in this moment, in this moment, when we watch him, and see what he endured, it should drive us to love him more and to follow him more passionately. Now, I want you to hear me. I think we got that. Here we go. When we watch him and see what he's endured, we should love him more and desire to follow him more passionately. Now, I want everybody to look at me just real quick. Just real quick here. Look at me. All eyeballs right here. Can you imagine what Jesus just went through? He is in the garden. He's just had a dinner with his disciples. We talked about his body that was going to be sacrificed, his blood that was going to be poured out as a new covenant. And now he goes to the garden of Gethsemane with sorrow and trouble in his heart. And he prays out of faithfulness. And yet there's this struggle going on. And his conclusion is this, Lord, not my will, but your will. You know what the will of the Father is? That no one would perish. No, not one. The will of the Father is this, that he created heaven so that you and I might enjoy him forever. The will of the Father is that those who are lost, which would be us, that we might be found. That though we are sinners, we might find salvation. And the only way for that to happen is for Jesus, the Lamb of God, as John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That the Lamb of God, Jesus, would come and he would die on a cross for you and I. That the Father's will might be done. 
Jesus said, despite everything I feel, all I want is your will to be done. So when I watch him and I see what he endured, something inside of me as a believer should love him more and want to follow him more passionately. Amen? Man, I hope that's your story today. One more thing I want you to notice. And I couldn't get away from the story without talking about this. And it's the failure of the disciples. The failure of the disciples. Verse 36 says this. He says, Then Jesus went to them to a place called Gethsemane and said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And then verse 41 says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Twice Jesus tells them to watch and to pray. Twice Jesus tells the disciples, I want you to watch and pray. Now, why would he tell them he wanted them to watch and pray? On one hand, Jesus is struggling. He needs support. Now, listen to me. Just think about this for a moment. The very Son of God, perfect, sinless, all-powerful, is struggling. And he's looking for his disciples to intercede on his behalf. Have you ever thought about that? Let me ask you this. I'll say this. There's nobody in this room too tough that we shouldn't ask somebody else to be praying for us. There's nobody in this room that's got your life so together that you shouldn't stop for a moment and ask somebody else, would you pray for me? He said, I want you to watch and pray. Why? Because he needs support. Secondly, because he wanted them to be spiritually ready. See, Jesus knew something they forgot about, that what they were going through in this moment, this is spiritual warfare. This is not just like a, a little moment where, you know, there's a blind person, I'm going to heal. No, no. This is a moment where they are feeling oppressed, a moment where the devil's at his height of his work because the devil thinks if I can get Jesus to a cross because he's not all-knowing, he's not all-seeing, he's not all-powerful, if I can get Jesus to a cross and he is killed there, I win. And see, that Jesus knew that what they're going through is spiritual warfare, and he wanted them to be ready, to be prayed up, Because he knew that if they weren't ready, if they weren't prayed up, they then would fall into, he says, temptation. Right? See, Jesus says, I want you to watch and pray. Hey, I need your support. But second of all, I want you to be so spiritually ready, guys. I want you to be ready because we're in a battle. Do you know Ephesians tells us for our battles not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, rulers of this world, that we ourselves are in a spiritual battle? Do you believe that this morning? We are in spirit. Listen, when your alarm clock went off today, there was a spiritual battle in that moment of going, do I get up and go to church or do I sit here and enjoy the rest of my, I mean, we have spiritual warfare all the time. The devil's going to do whatever he can to pull us away from God, to pull us away from the people of God and to pull us from growing in our faith in Christ, whatever he can do. And Jesus said, I want you to watch and pray because I want you to be spiritually ready because we're in a battle, but I also want you to be spiritually ready because if you're ready, then when temptation comes, you're less likely to fall into it. Now, obviously, the failure is they couldn't stay awake, could they? Look at me in these verses. Verse 40, it says this. And he came to the disciples and found them what? Sleeping. Verse 43. And again, he came and found them what? Sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said, sleep and take your rest later. In other words, sleep on your own time, guys. These guys couldn't stay awake. In fact, he looked at Peter and said, could you not stay with me even one hour? Hey, Peter, don't you know what's happening right now? Don't you know the time is pressing in? And I've asked you to watch and pray. And Peter, you can't spend one hour watching 
and being ready with me? See, the disciples failed. Jesus said, I want you to watch and pray. And they didn't do that. They didn't watch and pray over and over and over again. They just fell asleep. And I love what Jesus says in verse 41. He says this, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is what? Willing, but the flesh is weak. Meaning, hey, look, you've got a great heart. You've got great intentions, but you have no follow through. Did you hear that? You've got a great heart. You have the best intentions, and I love you, but you have no follow through. See, Jesus knew this, that these disciples were about to face the most difficult temptation they were ever going to face, and they needed to be spiritually ready. And if they didn't stay awake, if they didn't watch and pray, they would fall into temptation. Well, interesting enough to know, we know the rest of the story, don't we? Because that's exactly what happened, isn't it? You remember Peter, after the arrest, cuts the dude's ear off, Jesus kind of puts it back on. That's something I love to see, wouldn't you? Pop an ear off and Jesus picks it up and all of a sudden it's back on there and it's right and it's healed, it's not backwards. I mean, this is awesome, right? And then they arrest Jesus and they take him to Caiaphas' house and then Peter comes in the courtyard because Peter and some part of him feels like following Jesus is the right thing to do. And I find it interesting that while Jesus is standing before the who's who of religious leaders like Caiaphas and declaring that he is the I am, Peter is standing in front of the nobodies. In fact, the Bible says a slave girl. Do you know what a slave girl was in in that time? A nobody. And even with the nobodies, Peter denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. See, because he did not stay awake and pray, he fell into temptation. What about the rest of the disciples? Do you know that out of all the disciples, one Judas, he ends up hanging himself. Then you got 11 more disciples. Out of 11 disciples, only one, only one, say only one. Only one was at the cross. John. The other 10 fled. They were scattered. See, I want us to see the failure of the disciples. They didn't do what Jesus asked them to do. They didn't stay awake and pray. See, when you think about the story of Gethsemane, I want us to think about the suffering of Jesus. I want us to think about the faithfulness of Jesus. I want us to think about the struggle of Jesus, but I also want to think about the failure of the disciples. See, in the story of Gethsemane, there is great victory and there is great defeat. The victory is this, is that Jesus overcame the struggle and he stepped into God's plan. Look what verse 46 says. He says this to them, rise and let us be going. My betrayer's at hand. In other words, I've prayed. I've sought clarity from the Lord. I have that clarity. Let's get up because this is what awaits me. The cross is what's before me. See, Jesus overcame the struggles he had, and he stepped into God's plan. The disciples, they failed, and they fled. Verse 56 says this. Then all the disciples left him, and they fled. All of them but one. Gethsemane. I believe this, and you can just, just you can shut your notes. I don't want you to hear my heart right now. I believe Gethsemane is maybe one of the most intimate moments in all the New Testament. We see Jesus like we've never seen him before. We see the sorrow, we see the trouble, we see him pray out of faithfulness, and we see that struggle. If this cup. But we also see great victory. Because he got up and he surrendered. And the Bible says, no one, Jesus says, no one took my life. I laid it down of what? My own accord. And he willingly went to the cross. 
because he loved us. See, when we see Gethsemane, here's what the verdict I hope we all can make is that I am loved by God. Let's just say that with me. I am loved by God. Say it like you mean it now. I am loved by God. Now look at your neighbor and say, you are loved by God. See, now that's, hopefully that's more than a thing you just said. Okay, that was really too long. Maybe you need to like slow that down. You were loved by God. Listen, I hope that's the verdict we come to. And maybe you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ. And I'm telling you, I don't care what life is thrown at you. I don't care what struggles you've gone through. I don't care what hurdles before you. You have a heavenly father who loved you so much that he sent his only son to go to a cross to take on the full judgment and wrath of God to die for your sin. He took your place and he bore your sins. And all you have to do is surrender your life and say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. Save me. And the Bible says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you never trusted Christ today, I invite you to do that. But as a believer, can I just talk to you for a minute? Because here's some things I think we need to walk away with. As we think about Gethsemane, it should remind us of the depth of the love that God has for us. The depth of the love that Jesus had for us. And as you think about the depth of that love, I pray for you as it has done me these last couple weeks, that it would stir something inside of you that you would love him more deeply, that you would desire to follow him more passionately. I mean, if we walk out of here today and we go, oh, man, that wasn't a great message. Wasn't that a great story? Man, what Jesus did for me, I, that was awesome. But it doesn't change anything. We wasted the last 40 minutes. We wasted the last few moments of our, our, our time together. I want something in believers to walk out of here just kind of awestruck of the sorrow that he went through, of the magnitude of the judgment and the wrath of God that he was willing to endure for us. And that as believers, we would leave this place with a deep desire to love him more and a deep desire to follow him more passionately. Gethsemane should remind us of that. You know what also should remind us of is that we too need to watch and pray. We too need to watch and pray. Now we're not in Gethsemane with Jesus, but we too every day need to be alert and to be prayerful, that we need to be alert, and we need to be seeking clarity from the Lord, that we too need to watch and pray. Why? Because if we watch and pray, we're less likely to fall into temptation. Listen, if you are following Jesus Christ, you are a threat to the enemy. You are a threat, and he's going to do whatever he can. The Bible says in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, meaning he hates you, and he wants to steal your joy, he wants to destroy your testimony and anything he can do to, to take you and lose your ineffectiveness, your effectiveness with others, that's what he wants to do. Well, look, how do we stand up against that? Here it is. You ready? Watch and pray. Watch and pray. And can, I, can I dare challenge you to this? Maybe the posture for some of us this morning who have not been watching and praying, you look at your life and you go, you know what, Doug? I have been giving in to temptation left and right. You know why? It's because you're not watching and you're not praying. And maybe today you need to take on the posture of Jesus and fall on your face before a holy God and say, Lord, I'm going to commit to be better at watching and praying. I don't want to fall into temptation. I want to be a light, and I want my light to shine brightly. Gethsemane should remind us that we too need to watch and pray. And last of all, Gethsemane should remind us that we need the strength of Jesus, that in moments of our life of deep sorrow, that we are able to say, not my will, but your will. I like my way. Don't you like your way? I like my plans. Don't you like your plans? 
But part of the growth of a believer is saying, I can take my thoughts, my desires, my emotions, and I can lay them inside and say, Lord, not my will, not my way, not my plans, but your will be done. Now, I don't know what decision you need to make today, but here's what I know. If you don't know Christ today, I would love for you to make that decision. I would love for you to put your faith in him. I'll be standing right here. We'd love to talk to you about that. Or you can put on the back of your welcome card. Today, I gave my life to Christ. Or today, I want to know more about Jesus. And I will personally call you and we'll talk through that. But if you're here today and you're a believer, what decision do you need to make? Maybe you just need it in a moment. We're going to sing one of my favorite songs. Talk about how much God loves us and pursues us. And there's nothing that stops that. And maybe today, you just need to celebrate the love of God in your life and what he's done for you. Maybe today you need to come and commit to be better at watching and praying. And you need to get on your face before a holy God at this altar and say, Lord, here I am. Temptation's overtaken me. And I want to watch and pray. I need wisdom from you in my life. Or maybe you're going through a difficult time in your life. And you just need this invitation to be your response. This simply needs to be, Lord, I've been trying this thing my way. It's amazing how much I fell. So not my will anymore, but may your will be done. See, you can only say that if you know God has a plan for your life. You can only say that if you know that God wants to use you in your life, and he does. So whatever decision you make as a believer, whether it's just rest in his love, whether it's commit to watch and pray, or it's committing, saying, Lord, not my will in this situation, but your whatever decision you need to make, this invitation is for every one of us in this room. So I'm going to ask you right now, everybody stand with me if you would. Everybody has to stand up with me. I'm going to ask you right now, every head bowed and every eye closed, and I'm just going to pray for us. <clears throat> and in just a moment, as we sing, maybe, maybe you just feel like, hey, I need to give my life to Christ. I mean, I'll be right here in the front row, love to talk to you. Or you can put on the welcome card, and, and we'll visit. But if you're a believer today, and you really are blown away by the depth of what Jesus has done for us, and the sorrow he felt, and the trouble he felt, and the struggle he went through, but he did it because he loves us. Maybe you need to make a commitment then. Maybe you need to commit to watching and praying. Maybe you need to commit to his way and his will, not yours. Whatever decision you make, would you make it today? And this altar's open if you need it. Father God, I love you. I thank you for today. And God, I, I guess I wish in my own heart as I read the story I wish there was a moment I could turn on the television and I could have caught this real time. That somehow or another we could have videoed that, that intense, sensitive moment in the garden where Jesus so waited by understanding he's about to take on the full wrath that you have and the full judgment that you have. And that he literally was sweating drops of blood. But God, I thank you that his heart was that whatever you wanted him to do, he was willing to do it. If it meant the cross, that's where he was going. Why? Because he wanted us to be in relationship with you. God, I pray with everything in me that today you would open our eyes to that truth. That today you would open our eyes to the magnitude of how much you love us. That we as believers would leave here today encouraged and celebrating and declaring that you love us even when we feel unloved. And that God, as believers, we would make a commitment today to be on watch and to pray 
And then when life sorrows comes our way, that we would say, Lord, not my will, not my way, not my desires, but yours. God, would you move in this place? Would your Holy Spirit just fall fresh? May you wreck us. May you move in us. May we be unsettled today until we come to the place that we rest in how much you love us. Until we come to the place where we've committed and made a new commitment to you. God, this invitation is yours. May you move. May you operate. May you function only as you see fit. May we be challenged. But most importantly, Lord, may we be changed this morning. Have your way with us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Psalter's open. You can do business with God right there. Or maybe you need to take on the posture of Jesus and fall on your face and say, Lord, I need you. My challenge is this for all of us. Would we be faithful to respond as the Lord leads us? The altar's open.